She was this gun-toting, whiskey-drinking broad. The super epic fucking broad. She was a pioneer in the industry. She's also so famous and so controversial. So controversial. So she's kind of a big fucking deal. Her story is so incredible. She belongs on this podcast because she's a broad you should know. Hello and welcome to Broads You Should Know, the podcast about amazing and noteworthy women from history. I'm Sarah Gorski, and I am joined again by Dawn, who is bringing us an amazing broad that I am so, so, so excited to hear about. Tell us about your broad, Dawn. So I am going to tell you about Charlotte Cushman. Oh, you mentioned her last time you guested. I freaking love her. Oh my God, she's amazing. And she's one of these people that was enormous in her time period. But since then, her story has sort of been hidden and hidden and hidden. Because, unusual. Yeah, yeah. The patriarchy behaves so unusually. I know. <laughs> it's like they don't want us to know that women ever did anything. On purpose, I have not looked up anything about her because I want to be just totally surprised. <laughs> She's great. She came to my attention because I also knew nothing about her. I was actually uh, played her in a play called The Lady Was a Gentleman by Barbara Kahn. And it is a slice of life about a little period in Charlotte Cushman's life. There's another uh, play about Charlotte Cushman called The Last Reading of Charlotte Cushman. That one's by Carolyn Gage. So if you mm. are, you know, a theatrical person, look those two up. But the majority of the information that I got about her was from this book called When Romeo Was a Woman. It is by Lisa Merrill, M-E-R-R-I-L. And it is a wonderful book that goes into gender theory and all that sort of thing, but also talks about Charlotte Cushman and her circle of female spectators. So Charlotte Cushman was the most famous actor of any gender in her time. So she achieved a state of fame, international fame, as an actor that was unmatched by any gender of theater performer when she was alive. Wow. Yes. Which is difficult to do because productions didn't tour as often as they do today. Well, the... And we'll talk about it this, but the way that touring was handled at that time was that theaters had stock companies where everyone mm. but the stars were in resident at the theater and mm -hmm. the stars of the productions would tour. So just, you know, oh, the top billing okay. people, they would tour from theater to theater. And at each theater, they would do the exact same play, but they do it with a different cast. Huh. So she did tour all over the all over Europe and the United States, but not with the whole production. Okay. And also actors had roles for which they were known. So she would she would play a, you know, a whole host of roles throughout the course of her life, but there were a few roles that she would play over and over and over again throughout the course of her life. Was one of them Romeo? One of them was Romeo. So one of the things that uh, Charlotte wrestled with in her life is that the status of actresses at the time, you know, they were considered sort of one very small step away from prostitutes. Right. And the theater itself, there was a tradition of the third tier of the theater. So that would be like 
the highest balcony in the theater. Uh-huh. The theater owners would just leave that alone. They wouldn't sell tickets. And that would be the, pl- the place where the prostitutes would hang out. So people would actually go to the theater to engage the services of a prostitute. Oh my God, really? Yes. Wait, where, wait, what time period and what country are we in again? So she was born in 1816. In right outside of Boston. She was a New England gal. So yeah, the tradition at this time was that, you know, there was this place reserved in the larger theaters where you could make liaisons. So it was a huge struggle uh, for her to construct a public face that was free from the taint of that aspect of a theatrical life. And this was a struggle that she she had to navigate this, she had to walk this thin line for her entire life. Mm. Um, and then add to that the fact that she was a lesbian. Well, um, we all know what we think about those women. <laughs> <laughs> but the fascinating thing about it is that in some ways that worked to her advantage hmm. because the fact that she was never tangled up with men, that mm. she was never caught in any sort of romances with men in the public eye maintained her purity. So was she though, uh, was she public about her lesbianism or was that like a private fact? Like, did everybody know it or? I can't answer that question because at that time in, in history, the concept of lesbian didn't exist. Right. I'll jump ahead a little bit here. There is this idea, the idea at the time for um, the value of women, and this is middle-class women, right? So this was a time in history where the middle class was quite prominent. And the middle class was very concerned with policing itself in terms of its morality and its uh, social customs and things like that. So white middle-class women of the time were brought up to accept an image of themselves that was described as, quote, a true woman, unquote. And the way that you became a true woman was to practice four values. And these values, the, the four cardinal virtues of the true woman, piety, purity, submissiveness, and domesticity. My God, that sounds boring. Mm-hmm. So the things of the time say that without those four cardinal virtues, no matter whether there was fame, achievement, or wealth, all was ashes. Oh, my God. Oh, man, Boston. This is a tough town. <laughs> so she had to advance this image of herself even more so because as an actress, you know, she was already suspect. suspect. So she had to construct and constantly maintain, even in her private correspondence, like a lot of her, her letters to her lovers throughout the course of her life, the ones that have been preserved, she is constantly concerned with who are seeing these letters. So she'll write to her lover and she'll say, promise me that no one else has access to your letters. Promise mm. me that your father, your brothers, that no one will be able to take these letters and read them. The nature of her passion could not be revealed to the public. Okay, so it sounds like the public didn't know that she was 
into women. Simultaneously, <laughs> women companions were quite accepted. They were common. And it was often called a female marriage. Right. So as long as women continued to present a veneer of lack of carnal desire, right? Because the true mm. woman was considered incapable of carnal desire. Now, right. whether that's homosexual or heterosexual, same thing. If your wife was a true woman, she was considered incapable of carnal desire, which must have made time in the bedroom really fucking uncomfortable. Yeah, no kidding. <laughs> right? So again, this was the razor's edge that she had to walk her entire life. But the more famous she got, the more blatant she could get, right? Mm. So um, Charlotte was born July 6th, 1816, and she was the eldest of four children. She was born into a family that had a history of the women going against social custom to take care of themselves. So hmm. her grandmother left her grandfather and raised their three children on her own. There is no record of why she left their grandfather, but there is some theory that her grandfather was just um, not ambitious enough for her grandmother <laughs> and was not very smart with money. So her grandmother took the kids Allows. and was like, I'll do this on my own. Her mother ran a school and supported herself until she was married finally at 22. 22. Yeah, which was like ancient in that time. She married an older man who was a widower, so he had already had children by his mm -hmm. first family. Um, and he was 46. Wow. Yeah, so he was a distant figure in her life. He had another family still. It sounded like she isn't she didn't need him financially, really. She was running her own. So she got married because she wanted to, right? Or perhaps she wanted to be respectable. She was very bright and very um, successful in school. At 10 years old, her uncle, Augustus, was a, he was a stockholder at a theater in Boston. And he took her to see William Charles McCready perform Coriolanus when she was 10. Coriolanus. There's a doozy. Yeah. And that was it. Like she was sold. Hooked. She was hooked. That's all it takes for all of us, right? It's like one show we see and then we're like done. And we're like, that's it. That's all I want to do. So she loved being the center of attention as a child. She was a natural performer and she was a very talented mimic. She was uh, commended at school for her skill in reading literature aloud and her classmates complained that she had an unfair advantage because of her early exposure to theater. So from the beginning, she started to see theater as an avenue for self-improvement, right? It was a way to advance in life from the very beginning. Um, huh. She would organize the group of neighborhood children uh, and put on plays in her attic. And of course, she always cast herself in the leading, the leading role, whether it was male or female. More often than not, she would cast herself in the leading male role. She's like a real life Joe March. <laughs> Remember Joe yes. in Little Women? In Didn't Little Joe Women. do that? Didn't she always like do their own plays in the attic and she always cast herself? Didn't... <laughs> yep. 
so her her father's finances started to go bad. So her mother, in in the same mold as uh, Charlotte's grandmother, she went ahead and just moved the family to places where she could have better financial prospects. So the family had moved six times by her 14th birthday as her mother increasingly sought financial opportunities. And at 13 years old, her father uh, was forced into bankruptcy. So it's now 1828 and her father's finances just completely collapsed. So she had to leave school at 13 and start to work. Her mother opened a rooming house under her own name in another town. So now completely severing herself essentially financially from her husband to the point where they eventually just lost touch with him. Wow. That's intense. Yes. Yeah. Not not a good track record with men. I- <laughs> yeah. In her family, you know, there really wasn't a good role model for men. So because life as a performer was considered suspect, she needed a good reason to become one, right? So in the mm. future, she would always, she would tell this story about how she was forced into becoming an actress because she needed to provide for her family. And that was her skill. She was like really good at it already. She was already a performer. Yeah. So um, she also had a lovely contralto voice. She had a very deep voice for a woman, I say in quotes. (laughs) So the first performing avenue that she went into was singing because being a singer was slightly a step above being an actress in terms of respectability. Mm-hmm. And her first public appearance was in March of 1830 at the age of 14 in a singing recital. Aww. Yes, yes. You had to perform to catch the attention of patrons because mm-hmm. the only way that she would be able to get an education and get opportunities was if she had people sponsoring her. In order to catch the attention of people who were patrons of the art and patrons of artists, she would have to keep performing. Uh, She caught the attention of a couple of people right from the very beginning of her career. In exchange, she had to sign a contract that said that her patron or her sponsor would control when and where she performed. Is that normal? Was that common? Oh, yeah. Yeah, this was the way it was done at the time. It was sort of like having an agent in that the patron would get the opportunities for her. Mm. But in exchange for that, she had to turn the direction of her career over to them. And so she would perform where they wanted her and when they wanted for her to perform. So uh, she started to get opportunities in opera. From the period from 1930 to 1935, she was pursuing a singing career. There was press in New York City that mentioned her as early as 1835, saying that she is doing wonders at the Tremont which is a Boston Hmm. theater, in opera. And also, immediately at that period, she established herself as someone not to be trifled with in that, you know, the press at that time could make or break an actor's career. So when anything in the press took a swipe at her or one of her friends, she would immediately publish a response. (laughs) And, you know, would would clap back at them right away and would do so in a really clever way because she was smart. She would turn their judgments back on themselves. 
So like if they said, you know, that they thought that her morality was in question because she performed a certain role or in a certain venue, then she would write back and say, only someone who had a dirty mind would assume that because I was there, that means that I was immoral, (laughs) right? Like if you had a pure mind, you would never have jumped to that assumption. So she was really good at that. She was really good at that. So she got famous enough that she was hired to do a season in New Orleans, a season of opera in New Orleans. Whoa. Unfortunately, in late 1835, Mm. someone published that since Miss Cushman can sing nothing, it's best if she stick to acting roles. (laughs) Oh, my God. Yeah. Did she have like laryngitis or something? Or they're just literally saying she's so bad. She's not even saying. They're they're just saying she's so bad. She should just stick to acting. Right? (laughs) Assholes. She agreed, actually. She preferred to be an actor. So she talked to the manager and the manager and her worked out a deal where she would only act for the rest of the season. Wow. So in April of 1836, she opened as Lady Macbeth. It was her first performance as Lady Macbeth. Now, this would be a role that she would play for many, many years to great acclaim. She was often described as masculine. She was powerful. She was a very tall woman for her time. She was only 5'6", which is how tall I am. That's my height. Yeah, that's my height. Yeah, but (laughs) in the Victorian, you know, in that time period, people were a little bit shorter. So she was often taller than her male co-stars. She also had an extremely masculine face. If you look at pictures of her, she has this square jaw that is, I mean, she looks like a bruiser. She, <laughs> she was not a conventionally attractive woman. So she had to navigate, and you know, this comes up again, comes up quite a bit at the beginning of her, her career when she's trying to make her way. She had to be very judicious about the roles that she chose. And she was very smart about it. And often her lack of attractiveness would then be seen as a selling point for why she was so good in the roles she chose. Interesting. So she knew her brand. Right. She had this interpretation of Lady Macbeth that was very different from the sort of submissive helpmate that most actresses played her as at the time. Which we all know is incorrect because Lady Macbeth is not submissive. She is the more powerful <laughs> one of those that couple. And Charlotte was the first woman to play her that way. So she was a big hit in the role. In early June of 1836, when her contract in New Orleans ended, she went back to New York City instead of Boston and decided that she was going to be an actor. So she got a three-year contract at New York's Bowery Theater, which specifically had a mission to promote native talent, not in the sense we use the word now, but rather in the sense of non-European. Because at the time, the continent was considered the only culture, and Americans were still considered to be sort of brutish and stupid. Not not entirely incorrect. Yes, but... <laughs> well, she got a she got a contract as a walking lady in a stock company. 
So she was attached to the theater. And as I said, star actors would tour from theater to theater and the stock company would stay at the theater. So she had an opportunity to play a hundred roles or so. And she played men, she played women, she played young, she played old. So she got an incredible range of experience. She made a fan in the press right off the bat, a guy named E. Burke Fisher. He was the editor of The New Yorker, and he was crazy about her. (laughs) Crazy about her. He was crazy about her in a way that was just a little bit proprietary and creepy. So that when she showed up and started to perform, he was writing her private notes, basically Mm. saying, you know, how, how crazy about her he was and that, you know, she could do no wrong and she would always have a friend in him. So she was getting ready to debut for her first season at the Bowery. This uh, dude, Fisher, sent her a personal note that said, you more than exceeded my warmest desires last night and have now a double claim to the worship of him who now addresses you. If you go on as you have begun, the mind cannot compass an idea of the histrionic triumph you must achieve. Beyond even the wildest dream of hope will be your success until seated upon the lofty eminence of people's admiration, you become the American Siddons. As might be gathered from the attention paid you by the general audience and the gush of good feeling that beamed in the countenances and twinkled in the eye of those who came to criticize. Is this a private letter to her? This was a private letter to her upon seeing her preview, essentially. Oh my God. (laughs) Yes. So he was clearly an admirer. That is creepy. I find that very creepy. Yeah, that's, it's, it's overly familiar. So... When she debuted in September of 1836 as Lady Macbeth, he was one of her chief fans and extolled her virtues in The New Yorker like crazy. She was also really smart in terms of the way that she organized her performances. So one of the features of theater at the time, because the salaries were not huge, is that each of the actors would get to have a benefit night performance. And for that performance only, they would get a cut of the box office. So sort of like comedy clubs in Hollywood today, like if you can bring in audience, you can make more money. And so it was a way of making the actors responsible for filling the house. Right. She would use her benefit night performances to sort of build her offstage persona as well. She would play breaches roles on her benefit night performances because they always brought in a bigger audience. Uh, Women playing men's roles at the time was very popular. She was also a writer. She could write beautifully. So she would write poetry. And one of the things that she would do is she would specifically write poetry that appealed to the society that was coming to the theater. So for instance, one time she wrote a poem that she used as her epilogue piece that was in praise of the firefighters of the town and eulogizing their work and saying that they were true heroes and all that sort of thing. So she was very good at appealing to the public to get them to like her and to get them to support her as a performer. On the 22nd of September, 10 days after she debuted as Lady Macbeth to enormous success, the Bowery Theater burned down. (gasps) And she lost 
her three-year contract. She lost Oh, my everything. God. Oh, my God. Do they know how it bur- like what happened? Uh, it was very common at the time for buildings to burn down, especially theaters, because they were lit with torches. Like the footlights were real flame. Yeah, that's why we have fire curtains, right? <laughs> yes, exactly. That's why we have fire oh curtains. Oh, my yep. God. So Eberg Fisher, her effusive press fan, wrote all kinds of letters to his contacts on Charlotte's behalf, saying, you know, that here's this very talented actress who's in trouble. Is there anything you can do in terms of job opportunities? Blah, blah, blah. However, because he was so enamored of her, he wanted her to become a writer rather than go back to acting because writing, again, like singing, was more respectable than acting. Oh, fuck you, dude. (laughs) So he wrote all these letters on her behalf, introducing her to contacts as a writer and wrote her, urging her to take writing work rather than acting work because it was of a higher rank and saying to her, I could worship you as a poetess. (laughs) This guy's a creep. She was not, a, you know, not going to turn down sources of income. So she wrote for um, Gotti's Lady Book, which was a publication that was by women for women. And it was very, very much about uh, advancing middle class values and enforcing like how to be a true woman. I don't know, sort of like the Cosmo of today or something like that. <laughs> but um, she developed a strong friendship with the editor, Sarah Josepha Hale, who became an advocate for her for the rest of her life. Oh. She, again, you know, always knowing like what was best to do to advance her own career and her own person. She wrote a short story for Gaudi's Lady Book called The Actress wherein she excused the quote-unquote deceptions of acting as ways that women could hide the grief of being forced into the life by financial need. So she turned this sort of mistrust that people had of actresses because they could pretend to be someone they're not, and she turned it into a virtue of a way that women could hide the grief and the pain of their lives so as not to disturb other people. Wow, her PR game was strong. She was good. (laughs) So she did some writing for a while, but then she was finally offered an acting job in Albany, New York for five weeks. She took it. When her creepy patron, Eberk Fisher Pressman, found out, he completely disowned her. He was so disappointed with her choice that he wrote to her and said, henceforth, we shall be as strangers to one another. That guy's such a shit. He's a shit. Yep. In Albany, Charlotte hit her stride. Her contract was extended from five weeks to six months, and both men and women particularly loved her in her male roles. Mm. She again did her curtain speeches um, on her benefit nights, specifically tailored to Albany society. On her closing night after her six-month contract in Albany, New York, she played Romeo for the first time. And this was a role that would bring her fame and accolades throughout her career. There's this wonderful descriptions of people who were in the theater that were saying that like, when the curtain fell, there was this moment of silence and, you know, that they were afraid that she had bombed and that people were going to walk out of the theater 
And then all of a sudden there was this enormous eruption of applause. And it was like the moment that the audience had to take to remind themselves that they were in a theater and that what they had seen wasn't actually real life. Oh my God, that must have been so epic. Yeah. So she moved back to New York City and played various little parts in stock companies. In 1837, she got her next break. At the last minute, the the actor playing the role of Meg Merrilies in Sir Walter Scott's melodrama, Guy Mannering, got sick, and she had less than 24 hours to prepare to go on in that role. Oh, my God. And she worked it. I mean, she poured over the script looking for ways that she could, you know, ins into the character. And she finally settled on this highly dramatic sort of mad old woman gypsy. And she, you know, she covered her face in old age makeup, made her look like a crazy ugly old witch. She carried this big staff with her. And her first entrance, she um, organized it that she was kind of hidden. And then she leaped onto stage and struck this pose, this dramatic pose. And she was an immediate sensation. Oh like my the audience God. was blown away by her in this role. And she's a freaking sub. <laughs> yep, yep, absolutely. You know, that became another one of the characters that she played over and over and over again in her career because it was, you know, it was like one of her signature roles. So around this time, she had a couple of personal tragedies. Her youngest sibling, August, uh, was killed in a horse riding accident on the horse that she had bought him. Oh, no. Yes. And her sister Susan, um, who had been tricked into a marriage to a much older man, the way he tricked her is he pretended to be on his deathbed and basically said, if you marry me, you get my inheritance. And so she married him and instantly he was better. Wow. Yes. He tricked her into marrying him. Oh, my God. But then got her pregnant and abandoned her. For fuck's sake, dude. She brought her sister Susan to New York City. And after she gave birth, she basically pulled her sister Susan into the theater with her. Charlotte, now 21, opened a three-year contract at the Park Theater. In June of 1839, Charlotte's sister Susan joined her on stage as Juliet to her Romeo. Oh. She would, from that point often play the ingenue roles to Charlotte's breeches roles. So again, this was a very savvy move because if she is that good at playing someone who loves women, clearly it has to be her acting talent because she's acting opposite her sister. Huh. Interesting. Her talent... (laughs) at playing male roles was elevated by the fact that she was pretending to be in love with her sister. Was her sister good? Does the review say if her sister was good too? Her sister is good, but they recognize that Charlotte's is the superior talent. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. In July of 1840, her contract was up and she asked for a raise and the Mm -hmm. theater turned her down. So she went elsewhere. Um, She went to Philadelphia, where she got a contract at the National Theater. 
She was so successful in Philadelphia that the Park Theater came back to her in less than a year and offered her double what she had asked for if she would come back. Oh, they missed her there. Damn Skippy. Ticket ticket sales dropped without her. <laughs> so she played the game really well. And yeah. she knew her worth. And she was not afraid to ask for it. Mm-hmm. So in the 1841 and 1842 season, she came back to the Park Theater, now being paid $50 per performance. She had been paid less than $20 when she left there. That's the equivalent of $3,194.80 today. Her performance. Yeah. Her, her notion of the theater as being the greatest way for a woman to achieve an economic independence was proving to be absolutely the right course. So in 1842, at the end of that season, she was 26 years old. The next step up, she accepted a position at the Walnut Theater back in Philadelphia as the manager of the theater, as well as still acting as part of the company. So she would now get a piece of everything that was performed at the theater as its manager. So on opening night, she she sort of gave a speech to the audience, basically saying that now the theater is being managed by a woman, it's no longer going to be a center for vice. She basically said, we're going to create a family-friendly atmosphere for theater. So you can all come to our theater. It's under the control of a woman. So it will be a moral, family-friendly place. So the denizens of the third floor were not welcome anymore. (laughs) They still were. But she framed the theater and she chose the plays that were performed there as sort of fulfilling her mission of elevating the theater. Mm. So let's uh, take a moment to talk about romance. So her first um, woman who caught her attention was Anne Brewster. And um, they had a very intense friendship for two years where she would go over to Anne's house and they would read poetry and drama to one another. They would play the roles in the dramas opposite one another. And Mm. Anne Brewster wrote till the day she died of how Charlotte changed her life and like opened her up to a world of sensation and feeling that she had never dreamed of experiencing. Wow. Anne's brother eventually dubbed their closeness wicked and forced Hmm. Anne to give up Charlotte. Ding! What? Anne Brewster, in response to this, she wrote in her diary years later, Oh, Father above, is such love wrong? Can a feeling which seemed to elevate and refine my nature as did that love for her be wicked? Oh, no, it cannot be, my inner self whispers, and I feel assured, though separated in this life, in another world we shall meet and never know the wretchedness of separation. Anne was clearly in love with her. So this was a lesson to Charlotte, her 26-year-old self realized she could not let even the slightest little bit of anything show. She had to be very discreet. In late 1844, she met the daughter of famous painter. He was an American painter, um, but the daughter was Rosalie Sully. And she became Charlotte's first physical mutual romance. They, They each 
burned their letters to each other during Mm -hmm. their courting period for fear of, you know, anything coming out. So only one letter from Rosalie remains. And it was when Charlotte had fallen in love with someone else and Rosalie's heart was breaking. You know, when Charlotte left, she had said, you know, that she was coming back in about six months. And so Rosalie was, you know, basically waiting for her return. But then she kept extending and extending and extending. And it came pretty became pretty clear to Rosalie she was not going to be coming back anytime soon and that it was over. So but for many years, uh, for a few years, the two of them considered each other their wives. She would call uh, Rosalie my wife. So in 1843 and 1844, she met two people that would be very instrumental to her future. Um, The first was William Charles McCready, who was a British actor. And he was Mm. the one that she had seen in a production of Coriolanus at age 10. Oh, my God. Full circle. Full circle. (laughs) That had convinced her that she needed to be an actress. So he came to uh, Philadelphia, where she was managing her theater from New York City. And having found no women in New York City that he was satisfied with to play opposite him, he formally requested that Charlotte play Lady Macbeth to his Macbeth. Whoa. Yeah. So she had an amazing reputation at this point. He also was had a gigantic ego. Sounds like it. <laughs> There's no one quite my match here in exactly. New York. Exactly. No one can match me, <laughs> my talent. But uh, she impressed him. Now, they got along great at this point because she had stars in her eyes, you know, because he was like this amazing idol of hers. So in December of that year, when he went back to New York City, he took her with him, but he got irritated when she got praised in the press as much as he did. (laughs) And when Charlotte asked him to perform in her benefit night, he refused. He refused to be a supporting player in anybody else's... What an asshole! Yep, and then that is like yeah. No, no, I'm so sorry. I wouldn't stoop to that. And then when he went off to tour the southern states to continue his American tour, he didn't ask her to come with him. He's the one who invited her in the first place. I know you can't have your cake and eat it too, dude. Well, all of this sort of told Charlotte, um, and she had been fomenting this idea for a while, but it kind of sealed for her the idea that she had to go to England. If she wanted to continue to advance in her career, she had to go to England and learn what they knew that made them so much, quote unquote, better than any American actor. So in October 26th of 1844, she was, uh, she met the woman who would be probably from this point onward, the most important woman in her life. And that was 14 year old Sally Mercer. 14-year-old? Not a romantic relationship. Okay. I was going to say, that's a little creepy. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, no, no. Not a ro- Sorry. Not a romantic relationship. Okay. okay. Um, Sally, uh, she was looking for a personal assistant on her England mm. tour. And Sally McCready was a free black woman. This is before the Civil War. So slavery was still the accepted practice in the Southern states. But she hired Sally Mercer as her personal assistant, and the two of them departed for England. Sally would be with her by her side as, you know, as her personal assistant and as confidant and friend, but never as lover. 
There's no evidence in any of the correspondence that remains or any of the accounts that remains that they had any sort of a romantic relationship. But they were together for the rest of Charlotte's life. And Sally continued to live at Charlotte's property in Rome uh, for the rest of her life. By that time, Sally spoke multiple languages and was part of all of the international traveling and society mingling and all of that sort of thing that... um, that Charlotte did. What a gig. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. That'd be an amazing gig. So off she goes to England. McCready was there and he did offer her roles in Paris when she arrived because he was performing in Paris at the time, but they were only supporting roles. So she turned Mm. him down. That's right, bitch. (laughs) So her PR game is strong. From the beginning, she was working those connections. She was using, you know, everyone she knew to introduce her to other people that were in the artistic social circuits. So despite all this, she still couldn't get lead lead roles. So she did wind up traveling to Paris, where McCready offered some supporting roles. But again, she turned him down. Her old rival, Edwin Forrest, was also looking to get work in London in hopes of competing with McCready as a leading man. So he was hired by uh, the Princess Theatre. When Cushman also applied there, she was turned down because the manager of the theatre, J.M. Maddox, didn't think she was attractive enough to play leading roles. But Charlotte, who is always working the angles, when she turned to leave, she threw herself onto the ground and then raised her clenched fists to the sky and said, I know I have enemies in this country, but so help me, I will defeat them. (laughs) And it worked. Oh my God, it did. After she left the office, Maddox was like, Wow, she's she's pretty good at that. Oh, and oh so my God. the following morning, he shows up at her front door to offer her a position as the leading lady. There's an interesting note that Sally Mercer uh, writes that um, she actually noticed him pacing the sidewalk across the street from their apartment. And she told uh-huh. Charlotte this. And Charlotte was like, oh, I've got him on the back foot now. Oh, my God. So when he came in and offered her, she agreed, but she said only if I could debut alone the day before Forrest in a play of her own choosing, right? So she's like, yeah, yeah, absolutely. I'll work for your little theater. But I want to be the big star that opens before the man, and I get to pick the play. I wish I could see the look on Edwin's <laughs> face when he got that. News. Yep, yep. <laughs> so he agreed. She chose well. Was an immediate hit, and everybody in England loved her. Then they hated Forrest. So even <laughs> though these two American actors were pretty much, you know, trained the same way, because of the sort of gender ideals at the time in London society. You know, Americans were considered sort of barbarians and unsophisticated and uncouth. And so when Forrest, as a man, took the stage in leading roles, you know, and bringing all this energy and vivacity and, you know, uh, Americanness to his roles, this was very against what the British idealized for manhood. For the Britons, idealized manhood was sophisticated, cultured, reserved, 
genteel. Mm-hmm. So they wanted their heroes to be like that. They wanted their heroes to be controlled, to be evocative, to be gentle at yeah. times. No, that's not Charlotte's fault then that they didn't like him. It's no, just not, not the at right all. Yeah. Match of he wasn't the right match. He never forgave her for it. For the rest of his life, his friends in the press would write horrible things about Charlotte. Sure. <laughs> yeah. And around this time, she found out that Rosalie had died. So her little wife that she left back in England passed away quite young. She was playing Catherine at the time. And so she poured all that grief of losing Rosalie into her performance of Catherine. And people said that she was heartbreaking. That's a great role, too. Yeah. Was she doing Shakespeare? Shakespeare, yeah. Shakespeare's uh, Henry VIII. So in the spring of 45, she was killing it in London. So she sent for her family. So she brought her entire family over to London, bought a house, Mm. set them up, and took care of them. The interesting thing is the Americans, who would learn of her success because of the press, started to support her as a matter of national pride, right? Because she was the first Mm. American of any gender that was a success in England. So supporting her became an American thing to do. She spent five years performing and touring all over the place and developed an enormous following. Everybody wanted to be at the parties where she was. But in mid-1851, she came back to New York City. And on November 24th, she first played Hamlet. Is that her first time doing Hamlet or had she tried it other That is the first time she played Hamlet. Epic. Yeah, yeah. She was saving that one. She was so successful when she traveled to Washington, D.C., 30 of the most distinguished members of Washington society actually petitioned the theater that Charlotte should play Hamlet there. Oh my God. Epic. (laughs) Exactly. She was big. Epic popularity. She was big. At this point in her her, uh, fame, she's deliberately challenging male actors so much so that when uh when she performed hamlet in dc she borrowed edwin booth's costumes so that she could literally fill his shoes (laughs) (laughs) she's amazing um in november of 1857 back in new york city charlotte um opened as Cardinal Wolsey in Henry VIII, which was the part that MacReady had played opposite yeah. her Catherine. In 1848, Susan Cushman, um, her sister, was still playing Juliet opposite her Romeo, but Susan really didn't want to be an actress. So Charlotte approached Matilda and said, hey, how would you like to take Susan's place? Because then she could keep Matilda near her. You know, they were still at the, at, at the sort of attraction mm. phase of their relationship. In fall of 1849, she returned to the States with Matilda by her side. So Matilda and she were now, you know, joined at the hip. In fact, there are portraits of them and they dressed alike. Like they wore exactly the same. They went to the same tailors and had the tailor make them clothes that were exactly alike. Like ma- like matching or like complimentary? Like matching. Yes. Yes. They both wore the same type of shirt, the same type of bodice, and the same type of skirt. That cracks me up. Twinsies. Around this time, uh, Harriet Hosmer, who everyone called Hattie, 
was a 21-year-old aspiring sculptor, and she invited Charlotte to her first summer in Rome. So she had a, a studio in Rome, and they had been uh, introduced through Hattie's father. Hattie was, I mean, talk about a pistol. Hattie was like, uh, everyone called her a mischievous little boy because apparently she was like a clown. She would just run around Rome dressed in boys' clothing, paying, playing practical jokes on people, doing acrobatics in the street. <laughs> I mean, she was just a hoot. And so she had even less regard for propriety and, you know, social custom. And so, yeah, she wrote, yeah. She wrote to Charlotte and she was like, come spend the summer with me in Rome. And so Charlotte did. Um, and <laughs> this is how she sort of got introduced to Rome and the place where she would call home uh, for the rest okay. of her life. Susan's son, Ned, was not getting along with his new stepfather. So in 1852, Charlotte formally adopted Ned as her own child. He was 14 at the time, and Charlotte had been supporting him for years financially. And she uh, secured a place for him in the naval school so that he would uh, be taken care of. Just before her 37th birthday, Charlotte decided to retire. 37? That's so young. She decided that she would retire and live with a small group that she called the Jolly Bachelors. They were all uh, (laughs) women artists, right? And finally be away from the public eye in Rome where she and Matilda could, you know, basically live as partners for the rest of her life. It didn't last, (laughs) but... Oh, that's a bummer. (laughs) She was sort of like, she had a, a lot of farewell tours. Let me just put it that way. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> <laughs> which is also a PR move to, totally to be fair. a PR move yeah so they created this jolly bachelors this group of jolly bachelors they all lived on this estate and it was Harriet Hosmer it was Charlotte it was uh, Matilda Hayes it was Grace Greenwood Sally Mercer of course and they apparently were just the hit of Roman expatriate society. But there were quite a few of the male artists who had retired to Rome who, um, who did not like this new group in their midst. One of them called them the harem scarum of emancipated females. <laughs> Some jealous dudes. Yeah. Some jealous dudes. Right? Like propriety. We talked about it. It was so important. So Charlotte became a host sponsor and a great artist at leisure in the same neighborhood that Keats had in earlier decades. Uh, They had a house. They had a large house at the foot of the Spanish steps to live in relative freedom. So it was a really lovely, like, little golden age there in her life. However, during the winter her relationship with Matilda began to break down. Oh. They were constantly fighting. Matilda started to get, like, to really harp on her jealousy. What finally tore it was they had a big public fight in the house. Like, up until that time, Charlotte insisted on keeping their their troubles behind closed doors, but they had this big public fight where Matilda actually physically attacked Charlotte. And the oh two goodness. of them like were running through the house, throwing punches at each other. And it was more than Charlotte could handle in terms of the way it looked. 
Yeah, yeah, that's like a little. That's a, it's a lot. It was time for them to say goodbye. I mean, that's terrible PR. <laughs> yes, yes, it is. It's terrible PR. And even though it was inside the house, you know, enough people saw it that she was like, "Okay, I can't do this anymore." In October of 80, 1853, when Charlotte was taking the cure with Sally at Malvern, so they were back at Malvern taking the water cure. What is the water cure? Um, it's a uh, hot springs. Oh, okay. yeah, that makes it's sense. like going to the hot springs um, in Arizona now or New Mexico. I had just never heard that phrase before. Yeah. Okay, I learned something new every day. After she took the water cure, she went back to the stage. Her work was something that was both exhausting to her in many ways because she was such a dynamic performer. She put everything she had into it, but it was also her refuge in many ways. And when she had troubles of the heart, it was often the stage that was her therapy in many ways. Four months hmm. later, uh, Matilda left Rome to come back to Charlotte and Charlotte welcomed her back with open arms. In January of 1855, Charlotte, Matilda and Sally all lived in a house in London that Charlotte had bought. And Charlotte continued to perform in London and touring around Britain. She uh, hosted immensely popular parties that were attended by the most celebrated literary and music notables. Um, so she was back on, you know, top of London society. But then in the winter of uh, 56 to 57, Charlotte and Matilda returned to the Rome colony where Hattie was still living. Was, and Matilda was like over, she, like she, Matilda was able to was, cope with that? Yeah, she was contrite about having, you know, run off and had this affair. But I think in many ways huh. it like diffused a lot of the tensions between the two of them because there is no more mention of any fighting between the two of them. So I think they kind of came to... They settled at a different level, I think. Plus, Charlotte was never okay. one to abandon people. I mean, she went to England and left Rosalie at home. Although, frankly, I think she probably would have taken Rosalie if she could have, if her parents had allowed yeah. it. But she generally mm. did not leave women behind. But that winter, Emma Stebbins arrived in Rome. Emma Stebbins would be the one that she would stay with for the rest of her life. Over 20 years they spent together. Oh, wow. Charlotte just started to lavish a lot of time on Emma Stebbins. And, of course, uh, that reawakened Matilda's jealousy and rage. And um, that was it. In April of 1857, Matilda left Rome, threatened to sue Charlotte for damages resulting from a broken literary career. So it was like the first palimony suit or something. The first like... Whoa. Um, she had given up her writing to focus on supporting Charlotte's career and support, you know, being a supportive wife to him. Um, and when she finally left Charlotte, she was, she was like, you owe me for the earnings that I missed. Um, so Emma Stebbins was the same age as Charlotte. They were both 41. And Emma Stebbins was a sculptor um, like Hattie. She was from a different social class than Charlotte, though. Charlotte was middle class, scrappy, worked her way up. Um, Emma Stebbins was from an aristocratic family, so she was old money. They quickly bought a house together where their family unit included Sally and Hattie, who began to sort of shift into the role of an adopted daughter to Charlotte. 
and Emma. Mm, okay. Charlotte continued in their new house with Emma. She continued to gather women artists around her and she worked tirelessly on their behalf to secure commissions for them. For example, she and her friend put money together in a pot and purchased two of Edmonia Lewis's sculptures. Edmonia Lewis was a black sculptor. They purchased two of her sculptures and then they gave them to prestigious institutions in Boston so that her work would be in front of the public and that her name would be known and her sculptures would get known. So this is the kind of thing that she regularly did for other women's careers. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. In their 20 years together, Charlotte, uh, with Emma and Charlotte, Charlotte would often be lured out of retirement. Emma Stebbins did not really like the theater and really sort of poo-pooed Charlotte going back on to stage because, you know, she was grew up with these art- aristocratic ideas of, you know, um, of actresses as one step up from prostitutes. So, right. But she right. continually would go on these uh, farewell tours. But the bulk of her time was spent advocating for Emma's career. And uh, through her connections, Emma received her most famous commission, which is in um, Central Park in New York. It's a statue called the Angel of the Waters, and it's in Central Park's Bethesda Terrace. And if the angel bears a slight resemblance to Charlotte Cushman, well, I think we all understand why. Ah, I love it. (laughs) So on the morning of the 18th of February, 1876, Charlotte Cushman died. And she was surrounded by uh, Emma Stebbins, the rest of her female sort of uh, jolly bachelors, um, and all of the women that had loved her in her life. What a testament to a beautiful heart. Yes. And the entire nation mourned her passing. So after her death, she was, you know, she was mourned publicly and her reputation was quite um, secure. But then uh, in the decades that followed, as public mores began to change and as people began to look back on her life and say, hang on, (laughs) all of that professions of love may not have actually been pure and, you know, free of carnal desire after all. Mm. Her reputation, her articles, her her, uh, reviews, um, her memory was sort of slowly buried. So there are more chapters to Charlotte's story, but I I think I'm going to, I want to leave it there and say, uh, if you want to learn more about Charlotte's later adventures and, oh, she continued to have adventures. I would suggest that people turn to um, Lisa Merrill's book, uh, When Romeo Was a Woman. Thank you so much, Dawn. She is an amazing woman to bring into the limelight here yeah again (laughs) again yeah I mean just an amazing woman so uh so influential and important in her lifetime I'm glad I got a chance to tell you about Charlotte me too what a treat to learn more about Charlotte Cushman see some pictures and articles we dug up go on over to broadsyoushouldknow.com and while you're there, you can also click over to the About page to read more about Dawn, all of her info, her other podcasts, and her social links. Speaking of social, are you following us yet? We're on Facebook and Instagram at Broads You Should Know, and on Twitter at BYSK Podcast. 
To suggest abroad, fill out the form on our website or email us at broadsyoushouldknow at gmail.com. Are you a fan of this podcast? If so, then you should help spread the word about us. Share with your friends and family or leave us a review on your podcasting platform. It really helps new listeners to find us when you do stuff like that. Broadsy Should Know is produced by me, Sarah Gorski, and edited by Chloe Skye with original music by Darren Callahan. Finally, if you really enjoyed this episode about Charlotte Cushman, then you also will probably like some of our other Broads episodes, especially our other adventurous actresses, Julie Daubeny, Hedy Lamar, and Eartha Kitt, as well as Alice Guy Blachet, the first female film director. We'll see you next week for another Broad You Should Know.